Good morning, Highland Hills. It's great to see you this morning. Last week, we finished up our series where we looked at, ver- at various miracles through the Scripture. And today, I would like to start a series where we look at the ministry of Jesus Christ in the book of Mark. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Mark. And we will begin in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Looking at the documentation of how Jesus Christ came into this world to proclaim the good news of the Heavenly Father. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, wrote these words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray as we go to God's word this morning. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus into this world. The beginning of this good news that through your son you are reconciling the world to yourself, giving us this invitation, this opportunity to be your sons, to be your daughters, to be in your family and to proclaim to this world that they have this invitation to, to have their sins forgiven and to know you as the Heavenly Father. Be with us as we examine what you did through Christ some 2,000 years ago and how it impacts us today as we turn to this book. And Jesus, it is in your name that we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, we concluded our series on miracles, and I'm excited to begin another journey through a book in the Bible. We have gone through a couple books together. We went through the book of Jonah. And we went through the book of Colossians. And it's one of my favorite experiences uh, as we consider how we are to, to preach, how we are to have these sermons that we turn to. Sometimes we turn to topics, but sometimes we just open a book and see what God has left us. And when we're able to do that, when we start a book of Scripture, we're able to gaze into the mind of the divine and to contemplate and meditate on why God wanted us to have this particular book. It's kind of like a journey. We journey through a book together to see why God moved in the way in which he moved, what it meant to these people, and what it still means to us today. And I believe when we do this, that we give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to stir within our heart a desire, not just to hear these words, but to live out these truths. And so we are going to begin this journey through 
the book of Mark, going into uh, this biography of Jesus. And it is a biography. It's more than that, but it's never less than that. And so we have to ask, who is Mark? Mark, who wrote this scripture. Mark worked with the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Colossians that we looked at. He worked with Paul and Barnabas. He accompanied them on missionary journeys. But he also worked and helped and assisted the Apostle Peter. In this account, Mark wrote down the events of Jesus' life. And and church history would tell us that much of what he wrote came from a source. It came from the Apostle Peter. And so Mark, many scholars believe, was one of the first to write down a gospel. So so Mark is the initial gospel writer. This is known as the Markan priority. And based on this assumption, once once again, we said Mark is kind of writing a a biography in this historical genre, and it's definitely more than that, but it's not less than that. We see that in church history, many believe that it's Matthew and Luke who take Mark as a massive source so that when you read Matthew and Luke, you're going to see a lot of illusion and implication that is connected to Mark when you read Matthew and Luke. So Matthew, Luke, and John would have written their accounts after Mark. So Mark is a follower of Jesus, and he was an aide to Peter. And under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, he took his pen and he documented this ministry of Jesus. And that's why I believe when we turn to the book of Mark, not only is he leaving us an historical account of what happened, but he's leaving us applications of how we are to live our lives. And the first application we see is this. When we read Mark, we see this application. Prepare a place for Jesus to be Lord in your life. Not only is he talking about how it was prepared for the Son of God to arrive, but I believe Mark wants us all to prepare a place where Christ can reign as Lord. Look with me again in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. It's fascinating how Mark decides to begin this book that will serve to display to us who Jesus was, what Jesus did, and what Christ accomplished. He says from the very beginning that this is a gospel. Gospel means good news. And in antiquity, in this time period, that was typically used for a a proclamation, an announcement of some military leader, the birth of someone who is destined to be famous. But what God is doing is saying that what he's doing in Jesus Christ is good news for you, for me, for everyone, for the people who would have been the original recipients of this book, for the church throughout the ages, for everyone. This is good news. But he also says this in verse 1. He says, the beginning. Now, that may just seem practical. you got to start somewhere when you're writing something. So it just seems practical to say the beginning. But I think more is going on here. I think when Mark says that this is the beginning, 
that there is a theological implication here, that he is echoing something. In Genesis 1, verse 1, we we read this. In Genesis 1, verse 1, the Bible begins by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Later, when when John writes his gospel, he says this in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The beginning. You see, Mark is taking up what Moses wrote in Genesis, what the Lord led Moses to write, and he is saying that this good news is about something divine. It is God who has no beginning, The Lord, who alone can bring beginnings into existence, that is active and working in everything that will be accomplished in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And this beginning involves Jesus as the Christ. Christ is the same word as Messiah. And in God's kingdom, in days of old before Jesus, they would take the leaders of God's kingdom, the kings, and they would anoint them with oil to say, these are the rulers of God's people. And what Mark is saying is, Jesus is not a anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the Messiah. And everything that God wants to accomplish in this world will be accomplished in Jesus who is the Christ, Jesus who is the Messiah, Jesus who is the anointed one, will usher in a new beginning, a beginning where our sins can be forgiven, a beginning where we can enter into God's kingdom and be for him a kingdom of priests to this world. And one of Mark's favorite titles that we're going to see again and again for Jesus is this. Look with me again in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of Mark boldly proclaims it was in Israel that the coming of the Son of God was proclaimed. That declarations, pronouncements, and promises were made that God would send a rescuer, a Savior. Look with me again in verse 2. Mark says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. It's interesting how Mark does this. The earliest manuscripts that we see, and, and where many translations today take their cue, the earliest manuscripts say, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. But if you'll notice here, Mark does not only quote Isaiah. So why does he only mention Isaiah? Let me show you what I mean. In Isaiah 43, we see this in the book of Isaiah and in the book of Malachi. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, the prophet Isaiah said, A voice of one calling, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. But then in Malachi 3, a prophet who came later, it says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So it seems like 
Mark is quoting kind of a stitched together framework. He's quoting Isaiah, but we also see Malachi present in what he's quoting. So why does he only say Isaiah? Why does he say in verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet? Why doesn't he mention Malachi too? I want to show you this picture. If, if you guys are familiar with this area, you know that this is the Cincinnati Museum. How many of you have been to the Cincinnati Museum? I love going to the Cincinnati Museum. I'm a history teacher after all. I love going to the Natural History Museum. Now that I've had kids, I love going to the Children's Museum. I hope it gets to open again at some point because it's a great place to sit down and just let them go and, and have fun. But one thing I love about the Cincinnati Museum, which is the old Union Terminal, is when you walk in, you see this grand arch, this architecture that's just amazing. But did you know that you can walk to one end of this arch and you can say something? You don't have to scream it. You can just say hello. You can say anything. And you can have your friend go stand down on the other end and your voice will echo all the way over to them as if you're standing right beside them. You could even kind of whisper and they can hear what you're saying. I don't know if it was designed to do that, but it's pretty cool. So you walk in, and you have all these exhibits. And man, they've brought in artifacts from Pompeii, and they've had historical findings from King Tut, and they have an Omnimax theater, and I want to walk in and go here and echo (laughs) as, as soon as I go in there. But I just think it's really cool how this works. This just architecture just is designed in such a way perfectly, you can stand on one end of this massive building and say something, and it will echo all the way down. You know what I think Mark is saying? God's Spirit spoke through Isaiah. And that message of hope, of a rescuer, of a Savior, echoed through the ages. And it echoed through Malachi. And nothing could stop this message. And it was fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's why I believe when when he mentions Isaiah, he's saying when God spoke through Isaiah, that message echoes through the prophets. It's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and it reaches us today. And that message is that God's anointed one will save the world. And if you want to be saved by him, you must prepare a place in your life where Jesus can be Lord. Verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, we're going to look at how literally John the Baptist prepared for Jesus' ministry to, to take off. But once again, I believe this preparation is something we must do individually as well. We're going to see John literally proclaim and point to the Christ. But we have to ask ourselves, how are we preparing a place in our lives where Jesus gets to be Lord? What are the paths we are laying down in our lives where he gets to reign? Does Jesus get to be the Lord of your eyes, of what you see? Does Christ get to be the Lord of your words, of what you speak? Does the Son of God get to be the King of your money? of what you spend, of what you give to to support his kingdom? 
Does Jesus get to be Lord of your time? Have you prepared your calendar in such a way that you're investing your life sacrificially into the kingdom of God? Or if we look, have you prepared your calendar to be filled with trivial things that exalt yourself rather than God? We must prepare our lives for Christ to be Lord. Not in our power, for we don't have the power to do it, but leaning on the grace of God to do this. And if we do, if that is our aim, to prepare a place in which Christ can reign in our lives, then I believe we must make this application as well. Repent from sin and live for God. That is another application that's so clear in what Mark wrote. Look with me in verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Places have meaning to us. You don't just think of a place without it bringing mental descriptions and implications of what that does to your heart and to your mind. So, so you woke up this morning, and whether you were thinking about it deliberately or not, you were thinking of church. That's how you ended up here, unless you just accidentally showed up or something like that. But you planned, you were deliberate, I'm going to church. And in your heart, you were thinking, that's, that's where my brothers and sisters are. That's where we're going to sing the praises of the Lord. That's where we're going to have fellowship. If, if I mention Florida and Hawaii to you, that's something pops into your brain. You may be thinking warm weather. You may be thinking vacation. If I, if I mention Boston or Plymouth to you, you may be thinking history. You may be thinking of the Boston Tea Party or the, or the Pilgrims. If I mention Olive Garden, Chick-fil-A, Cracker Barrel, you may be thinking of lunch You may be thinking, that preacher needs to go a little faster. You see, places have meaning to us. And the point is, I believe that where John the Baptist is doing his ministry is not just coincidence. It's not just happenstance. There is a reason God ordained the place for which he would do it. Look with me again in verse 4. John appeared baptizing in wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What would the Israelites, what would the Jews who heard of John's ministry thought of when they heard that he was doing his ministry out in the wilderness? The prophet Jeremiah said this. In Jeremiah 2 verse 2 it says this, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness. Through a land not sown. The prophet Hosea says this in Hosea 2 verse 14. In Hosea 2 verse 14 the prophet said, Therefore I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness. And speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. 
There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt, when the people of God thought of the wilderness. They would have thought of a place in which Israel learned to turn from sin and trust in God and was assured by God that they would be restored to him. So once again, John's location is not coincidence. God is communicating something. God is bringing repentance. God is offering renewal to those who will fall in line and follow him. Repentance means you turn from sin. You turn to God. And John used a symbol visibly to show that this is what was happening. The people were willing to say, I'm not going to live for myself. I'm going to live for God. I'm not going to live for disobedience. I want to follow this Lord who lovingly calls me into a relationship with himself, not to follow a religion, not to follow a checklist, but to live out what I was designed to be and to experience the joy of what it means to have God as Father and to be walking toward him, not away from him. What was this symbol? Look with me in verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see, this powerful symbol that John was using in his ministry is that people would come and be baptized. And this baptism symbolically recognized that God in their hearts, God was moving and forgiving them of their sins. Now, baptism, and I want to say this very clearly, baptism does not save you. And baptism cannot literally wash away your mistakes. And I think we have to stress that. You see, the Bible says here that he was proclaiming a forgiveness of sins, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's not saying baptism takes away your sins. Think of it like this. If I said, go to jail for stealing. Now, when you go to jail, is that what made you a thief? No, you're already a thief. That's why you're going to jail. You see, going to jail for stealing doesn't make you a thief. You're already one. Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins does not mean baptism is taking away those sins. It means since you have been forgiven, since your sins have been forgiven, now you can do this symbol that points to that reality. I think Peter clarifies this. And remember, Mark, church history would tell us, is a prodigy of Peter. And in 1 Peter 3.21, we read this. In 1 Peter 3, verse 21, Peter explains, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. But he's really careful here. He's really careful because we can talk about symbols as if they are realities. I can point to my ring and say, this is my commitment to Leslie Sams. Now, if I lose my ring, I'm in a lot of trouble, but I'm still committed to Leslie Sams. So we can talk about the symbols sometimes as if they are the realities. And Peter clarifies. He says, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. So the reality is that God can cleanse us of our sins. And baptism points to that. Verse 5 answers this question. Then who should do this? Who should turn to God for repentance? Verse 5. 
and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This is for all people. Everyone, we are all called to repent and turn to Jesus. And if we do, if we recognize our mistakes and by the grace of God we turn to him because we can do nothing to save ourselves and we are at his mercy for forgiveness, then I think we'll make this last application too, and it is this, make much of Jesus, not yourself. Look with me in verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who's mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mark speaks of this great following that John had. All of Jerusalem, just crowds were just flocking to him, to hear him preach, to see him proclaim. And it's clear that he is seen as this prophetic voice in the midst of God's people that have waited so long for a prophet. So John was incredibly famous and he had the attention of all types of people. That's a dangerous position to be in. A lot of people in that position could get corrupted by power and arrogance, but not John. Despite the fame, in spite of the recognition, in spite of the celebrity status, he didn't care about the accolades of men. Why? Verse 7, and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. You see, he doesn't care about making much of himself because he longs to make much of Jesus. Because that which John valued above all was not his fame, his recognition, his power. It was to prepare the way for the Son of God. And that is really the only way any of us can be saved. As if we truly recognize Jesus isn't just a way for us to escape a punishment. Jesus isn't just a way to do something for us. Jesus is that which is most significant in all of existence. And salvation is found when we get wrapped up in that narrative and that truth that everything God is doing is to exalt his son. And we've been invited to be a part of that, not to point to ourselves, but to point to him as the ultimate treasure. Jesus, not as a mean to treasure, as a means to something about ourselves, as a means to make ourselves great, but as an opportunity to truly value that which is most significant. And it is the Christ, it's the Messiah, it's the Son of God. And it's a recognition that we're even unworthy to be a part of that. It's not like we brought something to the table to earn that. We are unworthy to untie his shoe, let alone be a kingdom of priests on his behalf. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Nonetheless, not because we deserved it, but because of God's love for us, we're invited to be a part of this. This grand plan to exalt Jesus, where he is Lord of our lives. Lord of our words and how we speak to one another. Lord of our relationships 
where we respect everyone as image bearers of God, Lord of our checking account, Lord of our time, Lord of our lives. I want to see if you've ever heard these names before. You ever heard the name Susan Watkins? You ever heard that name? What about Russell Carpenter? You ever heard of Russell Carpenter? What about this one? J.R. Grubbs. Have you ever heard the name J.R. Grubbs? Does that ring a bell? Okay, let's, let's try this again. Maybe you've heard this name before. I want to see if you've ever heard this name. Have you ever heard the name Tom Hanks? Does that ring a bell? Okay, what about these? Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio. Have you ever, you ever heard those names? Robert Downey Jr. Sound familiar? Now, here's the question. Why did you not recognize the first names I mentioned? But the second set of names, I feel like you recognized at least one or two of them. You had no clue who Susan Watkins, Russell Carpenter, or J.R. Grubbs could be, but you for sure knew Tom Hanks, Kate Winslet, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Robert Downey Jr. But did you know, while Tom Hanks starred in Forrest Gump, that Susan Watkins was the script supervisor of that movie? While Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet starred in Titanic, Russell Carpenter an unrecognizable name to us probably, served as the director of photography for Titanic. Robert Downey Jr. starred in Iron Man, but J.R. Grubbs served as the sound effects editor for that movie. So we know the stars, but we don't know these people that played vital roles in these movies we probably enjoy. We never knew that behind the scenes there were these people working so hard to make this movie a success so you could enjoy it. You know Tom Hanks, you know Kate Winslet, Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert Downey Jr., you didn't know these others. But you know what? Those who are behind the scenes would be totally okay with that. Because their job was to make the stars look great. Their job was to make much of the stars so the movie could be a success. So they're okay if you know the stars, because if you know the stars, they've done their job well. What did John say in verse 7? And he preached, saying, After me comes he who's mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. You see, John got it. Jesus is the star of this show we call reality. And our peace and our joy is found when we make much of him. And if we try to make the attention about us, if we try to be the star of the show, we're just going to be left empty. We're going to be left chasing joy and never experiencing it. We're going to be left longing for joy and never taste it. But when we point to Jesus and we say he is that which is most significant, he's the star of the show, and I'm going to invest my life into making much of him, then we attain what we were really seeking, what our hearts wanted. We attain a peace. We experience a joy that surpasses understanding. And when people look at us and they see this peace that circumstance can't dictate, but Christ alone can command, then we will point to him and we will say, it's not about us. It is about Jesus Christ. And if we do commit our lives to this, 
If we commit our lives to making much of Jesus and not much of ourselves, then we will need a power that doesn't come from us. Because honestly, we don't have the power to do this. Where does that power come from? Verse 8, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to unpackage next week. But right now, I hope this. I hope that after spending some time looking at verses 1 through 8, we see a life that was impacted by making much of Jesus. And I pray that's our aim as well. Let's close in prayer to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you that it pleases you to make much of your Son. And Jesus, we know that we are unworthy. We don't have the power, we don't have the strength to give you the recognition and honor you deserve. But we're, we rejoice knowing that even though we don't deserve it, by your grace you still call us to this path. And you give us the power to do it, to make much of you. That we get to spend this life and eternity thinking about this, that you loved us so much you gave your life for us. God, that, that he who is most significant, your anointed one, your Messiah, your Christ, when we were still your enemies, you gave him that we may be saved. And I pray that if in our hearts we truly believe that, that we will commit our lives to that endeavor of making much of Jesus and proclaiming his good news to this world and building up our brothers and sisters to exalt in this life and for eternity the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. And it's only in his name that we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us do what John committed his life to and what we're called to do. Let us praise Christ.